0: Welcome to the mortification of SPIN. It's a delight to have you all with us, as usual. Sadly, we're one person down today. Todd Pruitt is off somewhere in the woods in Mississippi, hanging around with a bunch of other PCA pastors at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. But I'm here, Carl Truman, as usual, with my co-host, Amy Bird. We have a special guest on today, Uh, somebody who's become a good friend of mine over the last couple of years. Uh, His name's uh, Francis Meyer known as Fran Meyer. He's a graduate of the University of Notre Dame in New York University and, interestingly enough, a former fellow of the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies in Los Angeles. From 1973 to 78, he worked as a screenwriter and story analyst for Warner Brothers, United Artists, and various independent film producers. Then from 78 to 93, he served as the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register Newsweekly. That's the news organ of the conservatives within the Catholic Church. And from 1993 to 1997, he was communications secretary to Denver's then Archbishop J. Francis Stafford. For the past 20 years, he served as special assistant and senior aide to Archbishop Charles Chaput. who's was on this program uh, just uh, a month or two back, first in Denver and now in Philadelphia. He has written an awful lot, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, America, First Things, Commonweal, National Review, the Christian Science Monitor, and many other national and foreign publications. Fran's been married to his wife, a Ann, met her, she's a lovely lady, uh, for 46 years, and they have four children and ten grandchildren. And Fran doesn't often drink beer, but when he does, he prefers Dos Equis, because on the <laughs> basis of that resume, you can tell that he is the most interesting man in the world.
1: So, <laughs> no, I'd like to enjoy. record that for my wife, if you don't mind.
0: <laughs> thanks very Blinder. much for joining us, Fran. It's uh, sure. great to have you on today. Delightful. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on was you have your fingers or have had your fingers in so many different pies over the years. I wonder if you could start by perhaps telling us a little bit about your experience in Hollywood, particularly as a, you know, somebody that would represent values, beliefs that Hollywood would not typically be sympathetic to.
1: Well, one of the things you learn very quickly when you're in Hollywood is that writers are a distinct underclass. It's the directors and agents and similar studio heads that uh, actually run things. Hmm. Um, You know, I had an interest in drama, Hmm. and so I I had an interest in what I thought was at the time the most effective means of uh, communicating the kind of human stories that I was interested in. So Hollywood made a big impression on my college and graduate school years and that's the first course of my career that I decided to pursue but it's a really surreal environment and I don't know I'm glad I did it I'm glad I'm glad we worked there for 5 years and I was actually able to support my family doing it I've never regretted leaving it the way I left it was writing the outline for a novel and the first couple of chapters and selling it to a publishing firm it was Crown Publishers at the time in in New York and getting a small advance and uh, that led me to take a part-time job at the National Catholic Register as sort of a line editor. And four months later, I was the editor-in-chief. So I never went back to the novel, and I never went back to hmm. my work in Hollywood. It's an extremely commercial environment, obviously. It draws a lot of strange people. I mean, I remember someone jokingly telling me when uh, when I first got involved, with, if, if you took the United States and turned it on its side, all the loose nuts and bolts would fall into California. And, <laughs> and it's, re, it's really true. I don't candidly know how you produce high-quality, religiously-themed movies in the current environment. My wife mm-hmm. and I just watched Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ and also Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth over the Easter weekend. And I was astonished at how moving both of those movies are, but they were very difficult to make, and they were only made because of the enormous pull of personalities of Franco Zeffirelli and Mel Gibson. What happens for Christians frequently is they, you know, they may have a good story, but it's either too pious or it's underfunded, and the result is kind of mediocre work, which doesn't really
0: mm-hmm.
1: advance the gospel in a lot of ways. So I'm glad to be gone. Do you think that
0: that that is part of our current cultural malaise? You and I have talked a lot over the years about uh, the shaping of popular culture and how people think differently now. And it's so difficult to present arguments because people's thinking is not shaped by arguments. Mm. Do you think that the, the way Hollywood has gone, even since you've left it, has really made the cultural situation for Christians, not simply in Hollywood, but across the board, an extremely serious, if not catastrophic one.
1: You know, you and I belong to the same club, pessimism, so, <laughs> so, uh, which is different from being hopeless. But, uh, you know, I think that there has always been a strong celebrity spirit to Hollywood for obvious reasons. And as the culture has become more and more visual and less and less typographic, that celebrity that celebrity culture has has much more effect on the national culture so mm-hmm. so people people like the stars in Hollywood who have political views have an easier time selling what they have to sell because you know in, in terms of their politics because they are a celebrity, and people love to eat that stuff up mm-hmm. as opposed to sitting down and reading you know. Dostoevsky, <laughs> I mean, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Something it's almost but. like
2: their celebrity comes with its own authority to speak about all kinds of issues.
1: That yeah, well, they do, whether they know anything about but, them or not.
2: Yeah, don't necessarily know much about.
1: You know, there's an interesting relationship, too, between Hollywood and Washington, D.C. I was in D.C. with a friend who's a religious liberty lawyer a few years ago, and she was uh, she had a line that I'll never forget. She said that Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. And, and and there's a, honestly, there's, there's, there's more truth to that than you oh, want to think about, you know? I mean, there's a celebrity culture in Hollywood. There's a different kind of celebrity culture to American politics now, but it's still very pronounced. You know, Neil Postman wrote about this in Amusing Ourselves to Death a long time ago. You know, Mother Teresa could not get elected to dog catcher because she's just not attractive or wasn't attractive. That's kind of a... An indication of the corruption of our cultural – corruptions a big word – the decline of our cultural standards and uh, an ability to judge intelligently on all sorts of fronts.
0: One of the things, that it, touching on the celebrity thing, that strikes me as a cultural difference between America and certainly the Europe where I grew up or the Britain where I grew up is the focus on individual personalities here. That there is an almost messianic tendency in American culture to think that the strong man or the big man or the big woman is going to be able to solve problems. Back home, I think there's there's an inherent distrust of individuals and perhaps more of a trust of corporations to solve things, if (laughs) I could put it that way.
1: Yeah, that's the strength and the weakness of the American personality. I mean, the good news is that the individual really counts in this country. The bad news is that that he simultaneously doesn't count enough and counts too much. What I mean by that is that there's a fundamental tension in the American personality between this kind of aggressive self-assertion and simultaneously a fear of being outside the zone of acceptable opinion. And that schizophrenia is just kind of built into the American temperament.
2: That's a good way of putting it. I know you've written a lot and thought a lot about technology and culture, and as we're talking about the celebrity culture and politics, it it really makes me think about how technology has affected the way that we get our news, form our opinions, and make these so-called arguments for what we're passionate about. What do you think well, technology's role has
1: played in all that? Well, I think Christians, first of all, need to remember that technology does an awful lot of good. First of all, the YouTubes that you have, Amy, uh, <laughs> are, are, no, I'm quite serious. I mean, there are people tune into them. They learn from them. They have the experience of you, and you're part of the message. The message is a good message, but part of it is the encounter with you personally. So that's good. I can't even imagine what not having an iPhone would be like now, I mean, right. a, or a computer and and you know when I when I started writing I was writing by hand and then by typewriter. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just inconceivable now. But and for example, we have a one of our sons has Down syndrome, and an, and one of our grandchildren has a very severe palsy. And and what technology enables them to do and have access to is quite extraordinary. So the important thing is is that as a tool technology in principle can accomplish great things. The trouble is is that just as we use our tools, our tools use us, they change our framework for thinking. And mm-hmm. that if you ever lose critical distance from the tools that you're using so that you're controlling them rather than they controlling you, you really You get into trouble real fast. I mean, if you look at our political environment right now, everything is instantaneous. Well, a lot of our problems can't be solved with instantaneous thought. A democracy like ours, you know, which is a republic, can't function if people don't actually think before they act. And yet, uh, that's what all of our technology is driving us toward is kind of instantaneous action, which usually translates into being angry a lot of the time.
0: Mm. That's an interesting point, and of course, you've, you brought my attention to the Canadian philosopher George Grant, yeah, who writes. And, and maybe you could just say a few words for our listeners to introduce them to him. I suspect many of them won't have read his writings.
1: Well, George Parkin Grant, I think he was Church of Canada. He was Anglican. He was married to a, he had, His wife was Catholic, but he was uh, Anglican, and he was a Canadian philosopher, died in 1988, and anyone who wants to understand the North American experience and Uh, why technology has shaped us in the way we are, really needs to read him. He has a wonderful book, short book, Technology and Empire, and one of the essays in there is In Defense of North America. And, of course, Mm -hmm. he's writing from a Canadian perspective, looking in on the American empire. But his description of how the Enlightenment and Protestant theology, particularly Calvinist theology, translated into this kind of extraordinary impulse to mastering the environment that has informed american culture ever since you know we tend to look at the world because of technology not as a gift but as a resource even Mm -hmm. the expression natural resources is a (laughs) a, you know raw material i mean and of course from the traditional christian perspective the attitude should be one of wonder on in front of god's gift of creation even that word creation suggests that This doesn't belong to us. It was created and given to us as a gift, and we have a responsibility to steward it. Mm, Uh, That's not how we think about it anymore. We think about mastery and Mm. and the whole idea of, and particularly in the American environment, this is an important point that Grant makes. The United States is the first country in history that has no natural history before its founding and invention by the founders i mean there was mm-hmm. nothing here and we've created it whereas if you were in france or you were in spain or italy or germany you were part of a culture that stretched back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years thousands of years here we made it all up and it gives us a a disconnection from natural reality that makes it possible to do great things but also is really dangerous because we delude ourselves into thinking that and and sex is a perfect example we delude ourselves into thinking that we can do anything that we set our minds to Mm
0: -hmm. lays the foundation of what i call the well really building on philip reef you know the anti-culture it's one aspect of that there's not simply a repudiation in many ways of creation and nature but also a repudiation of the past Mm -hmm. Um, to go back to something you said a few minutes ago when we were talking about individuals it's both the genius and the fatal flaw, it seems to me, of the American experiment are, one, it's forward-looking. So it is a land of opportunity and optimism and hope. But two, it's forward-looking. It doesn't see history as a source for identity, as a source for Thinking about the present and the future, the history always seems to be something to be erased or overcome, it seems mm. to me, in the American project. Would you think that's a fair analysis, Fran? Well, I
1: think it's a very, I think it's explicit. I mean, Henry Ford, you know, made that comment about, he said that history is just junk. Why would mm. we pay attention right? to it? Yeah, And yeah. that just means that you've, <laughs> you've disconnected yourself from a whole narrative. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we've done that as a country and we, we do that as individuals as well.
2: Right. It really does fuel the sexual revolution because it's without the history, we become our own creators and we can totally reinvent ourselves. And there's kind of a pressure to do that. You see that in the celebrity realm. Uh, they're, they're constantly having to reinvent themselves for
0: attention. Yeah. Which takes us back to Wilhelm Reich, of course, who was mentioned by the Archbishop when he was on a month or two ago, who actually identified America as, for all of its Puritan past, as the most potentially fruitful place for the sexual revolution. Right. Right.
1: You know, sex is, you may have not noticed this, but sex is interesting. (laughs) uh, Sex is both a solvent and an adhesive. And I think... This is probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about today, but the most interesting thing about a good marriage, of course, is that sexual intimacy increases the intimacy, increases the adhesion of the unit, and provides the foundation for a family. So it's very, I mean, it's obviously very important in how we view ourselves, how we give ourselves to other. Love protects the family from outside interferences and that kind of stuff, but it can also be Sex in our current environment is also a solvent in the sense that the more and the less personal our sexual relations are, the more sex acts as an element of fragmentation. So to your article in First Things about the uh, sexual surveys in California of like 13-year-old girls and younger, the function of that is to actually, I don't know to what degree it's conscious or not, but it seems to me that encouraging sexual activity without... The bonding that goes on in a marriage is a good thing from a statist point of view because it prevents individuals from bonding and forming communities that can be a, become a problem mm-hmm. for state control. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm, I mean that's kind of like thirty thousand feet, but I mean the, yeah. the yeah. families. Why is religion a problem for a state? It's a community. I mean, if Carl or Amy has a religious point of view and makes a stink, so what? You know? I mean, you can be mm-hmm. marginalized, you can be ignored. In worst case scenario, you can be ja- you know, jailed. If a community of believers makes noise, that's a mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so breaking down communities and strong bonds that are non-state related becomes one of the primary tasks of a statist mentality. And, and mm-hmm. the, the liberal state that we've got is just a kinder, gentler version of the other two Enlightenment ideologies, you know, Marxism, Leninism, and fascism. I mean, it's we're much more effective at what we do precisely because we have all sorts of narcotics to ease the pain.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to add to that as well. I think the sex is an important or should be an important rite of passage into adulthood. You move out of the family home and you take up with a spouse. Not that the virginal person can't be an adult. But typically speaking, sex, I think, has been a passage of adulthood. Now it's been denied even that significance. That, I think, has implications for for the infantilization of society, which again plays into the hands of a big state that wants us to remain infants, that wants us to remain dependent upon it, rather than building bonds of dependency upon others.
1: Yeah, when we talk like this, it can easily sound paranoid, and that's not the I, – I don't know to what degree people who are in political power think like this. I don't yeah, subscribe It's not a conscious thing. I mean, it's not a – we're not talking about conspiracy theories here or anything, <laughs> but it's the natural, logical consequence of – if you live in a democracy that is based on maximum freedom for the individual – which is, you know, the, the basis of liberal democracy. Unless that's held in check by kind of a, a common agreement to view things as higher than the state itself, it very quickly begins to increase the power of the state because the state begins to ensure the freedom of the individual to reinvent themselves. It has to interfere with the functioning of any community or relationship that gets in the way of its ability to ensure... The rights of the individual, which ends up atomizing the whole mm-hmm. culture and increasing, ironically, increasing the role of the state. These are all, you know, bigger ideas than how people live their lives on a daily basis. And most of us just don't think about this at all. But it's important to step back and see the direction that things are going in, right. in, a, in a culture every once in a while, or you end up being really ugly, surprised in an ugly way.
2: Right, and what kind of is happening, you're kind of contrasting this relational community versus the individual. If we are targeting young girls and boys as sexual beings and over-sexualizing them, it all becomes about their individualistic consumption then rather than relational community. And then we're able to, through propaganda and marketing and other means, create desires for them, you know, tell them what to desire. There's a lot of ways that this can play out, really.
1: Yeah, if you sit and just watch television for an evening without actually engaging in the entertainment that's going on and just look at the number of, you know, advertisements and the tone of the advertisements, it's just a relentless wall of Mm -hmm. appetite creation. And the terrible thing is, is that when you get to my age, you inevitably begin sounding like your parents, you
0: know?
1: <laughs> and and it's embarrassing. But I mean, you just I, we just have to be much more conscious of deliberately raising our children and deliberately separating ourselves from those things in the surrounding culture that mm-hmm. that work against what we're about, it's just so fatiguing on so many It moments, is. Right? So I, yeah. I
2: read a fascinating book by uh, Susan Browder called Subverted, and she talks about her role in the sexual revolution in the 70s as a writer for Cosmopolitan mm-hmm. magazine, and um, she talks a lot about propaganda, and one thing that um, I wrote down that she wrote about propaganda is that it's dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. She said it steals away a person's freedom to make decisions based on truth without even knowing it happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're talking about in a lot of ways is we don't even know it's happening if we're not stepping back and really thinking through the yeah, I mean the
1: irony while we're on the subject of sexuality I mean the irony is is that if you see if you, if you follow a lot of our entertainment the sexuality is frozen somewhere in the 25 to 40 year old range as if it didn't exist after that you know mm-hmm. and yet the real satisfaction in a long-term intimate relationship grows, it doesn't end. I mean, if you're in a right. healthy, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. The point is, is that r- the real satisfaction in an intimate relationship is the intimacy. It's not the physical release. Right. That's an important part of it. You can't get that if you're in serial relationships. No. It just isn't possible. So it's really a kind of theft. Uh, right. And I find that to be one of the real, it's like the culture is, America is a sad culture because appetites are created that can never be adequately satisfied, Mm -hmm. and that just leaves you unhappy all the time.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that consumerism is predicated on, of course. Mm -hmm. Just changing tack slightly, Fran – Zamie was there talking about, you know, stepping back to get a perspective on things. As a, as a former journalist yourself, we now hear a lot about fake news, alternative facts, etc., etc. How on earth can a Christian, how on earth, or let's just say even an intelligent person, handle the sheer volume of stuff that's coming at them <laughs> from their iPhone, from their computers, news-wise, you know, in a world where we can have our niche websites or our niche TV channels that just tell us what we want to hear, how should a Christian approach getting a decent perspective on the world out there, knowing that it's always going to be filtered through the framework of websites, news channels, etc., etc.? A two-second well, re- answer. Very, very simple question.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, just... You know, in in a skeptical age, you don't want to encourage skepticism, but the reader needs to have a a skeptical attitude toward the news because nearly all of it is biased in one way or the other. I I don't know, no, Carl. There isn't an an easy answer to that. We can't escape the frameworks that we operate from. So, no journalist ever, anywhere, can really claim to have been entirely objective. The issue is for a journalist or for a journal. Is, does such a thing as truth exist? What you get is the gradual identification of news organizations with, you know, this or that kind of social reform kind of movement so that you get conservative news on Fox and liberal news on virtually everything else. You just have to step back and cultivate kind of a critical skeptical attitude toward what you read. And you can't do that unless you read a lot. Yeah. And in a in a culture that discourages reading, well, you can see where we end up.
2: Yeah, yeah well, yeah. forget like the Fox News or CNN. I would say so many people are getting their news from social media now. And so, you know, you're posting and sharing articles on Facebook or Twitter. People can scan through their Twitter feed to see what's going on right now. And then you you see that a friend shared it. So there's this element of trust mm. almost. Oh, okay, well, my neighbor shared this and I trust my neighbor, so I want to trust this article too.
1: Yeah. I'll tell you the, the only paper that shifts. the only newspaper that I that I trust now, and I don't entirely trust it either, <laughs> but I mean it's it's a it's a newspaper that has to has to tell the truth or it's out of business is the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is is that the people who read that are financial decision makers, and they will not tolerate incorrect information and so you tend to get this kind of Darwinian <laughs> focus on you know getting it right, so a lot of what you read there I believe to be as accurate as reasonably possible. I used to really admire the new york times i I never read it anymore it 's become a political tool and i, I don't I don't um I guess I'm just at a point in my life where I'm very cynical about almost anything Mm -hmm. that gets told to me unless I know the person or the source as being reliable and making an honest effort to tell the truth as they understand it.
2: That was another really clarifying thing for me when I was reading Susan Browder's book because she talks about being an investigative reporter in the seventies and eighties. Okay, so we're not talking two thousand, you know, mm-hmm. fifteen or seventeen. And um she lands this dream job. Of course, this was Cosmopolitan Magazine, not the most trusted news source, but still she's immediately taught to make up stories, to make up sources, to make up fictitious experts, even, in her stories, all to propagate this single, sexually uninhibited, aggressive career woman image that, uh, you know, the world is to want to admire and then become. So, it's just amazing. You know, she goes to to school, (laughs) she gets this professional job, she's an investigative reporter, and she's immediately told to make up stories and sources.
1: Yeah. 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 You know, the interesting thing is, is that the effect of that sexual revolution on Christianity, American Christianity, has been devastating as well. Right. I, mean, I want to recommend something. You'll get a good kick out of this. Carmen Palia, Camille Paglia, gee, this must have been 20 years ago, wrote a hilarious essay called The Joy of Presbyterian Sex. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just wonderful it's, because it's a critique of liberal Christian that liberal Christian appetite to kind of find a way to get along with the secular culture. And she focused on this Presbyterian group, but I mean, that impulse is in every denomination, every Christian religious tradition. How do we get along with the current culture rather than the inconvenience of going into some form of opposition or criticism? It's certainly present in the Catholic Church the pressure to make a deal with the kind of sexual orthodoxy that's current in American culture. But you can't do that if you believe in the gospel. I mean, if you believe the gospel's true, you have to make some effort to resist that. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, again, when sex I, And I also
2: edge. I also worry that within the church, I mean, when we react against the sexual revolution, we almost swing the pendulum over and in our zealousness to become to react against it and to avoid sin, we almost still train people to reduce one another, to reduce our brothers and sisters into overly sexualized, you know, with the women become sexual temptresses that the men need to avoid, and the men are characterized as, you know, having this kind of animalistic impulses that can't be controlled, which is um, very dehumanizing as well.
1: Yeah, well, that, that is a function of the um, way American culture uses sex as a prism for everything right you know? i mean it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's it 's really like, odd
2: it 's really odd it 's hard to to and, and I really appreciate that about what Archbishop Chapu wrote on purity to be to be holding the line of being rightly ordered holistically mind, body, and soul in our offering to God instead of just reducing ourselves.
0: I was going to say, it's just very, very easy to allow the world to set the terms of debate, even when right. we don't agree with the content. Uh, yeah. So, you know, third-wave feminism precipitates a kind of third-wave chauvinism, for want of a better word, within the church, rather than simply allowing Scripture to set uh, our agenda on these things. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I think it's important for any religious believer to hang on to is to remember the fact that, you know, life is short we can't possibly avoid death and death tends to put a light on the meaning of our lives now and refocus us on the central question of what comes next and what are we giving our lives to? And that's certainly where I'm at right now. And my wife and I have tried to live that way in our, uh, in our married life, but there's more than the material world around us and the kind of satisfactions that it has. And, all of this sounds sounds like cliches when you say it, but that's what the world runs on. Cliches become cliches mm-hmm. because they're mm. because they're essentially true. You know. Mm.
0: Mm. We were talking before the program. Uh, Frown mentioned I'd been to the the Franciscan Church. I visited the Franciscan Church in Rome, which is mentioned by the Archbishop in his book. Where down in the in the sort of the lower part, there are these grottoes decorated with bones of dead franciscans it mm-hmm. is the strangest place yeah but there's a as you enter that area there's that notice that says something like uh, what you are we once were mm-hmm. what we are you will become mm-hmm. and it's it is reminding us that our lives are bounded by death and I think, you, I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head. There, to use a cliche, you hit the nail on the head. You absolutely hit the nail on the head when you said that uh, it's that denial of the reality of death, I think, that is, is such a great part of our culture at the moment. So yes, yeah,
1: Americans don't like – they've never liked it, but they especially no. don't like that encounter with powerlessness and seeming futility – at all, I mean, we just don't. It's not a question of being Catholic or Protestant. It's, it's a question of being an American. American who goes into that environment is going to feel profoundly uncomfortable. And yet, it's deeply Franciscan and deeply Christian to face the fact that we're that we're here temporarily, and we're our significance comes from being part of a much greater narrative. And no one's going to remember who we are in a hundred years, yeah. except God.
2: Yeah. Mm. Well, once again, we get to talk about Carl's favorite subject today, and that is death.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's because I'm so terrified of it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, France, so much for this conversation today. It's, It's been enlightening, and it's just been a joy to talk with you today.
1: Yeah, now don't forget to try Peter Pan peanut butter please oh, yeah. it's, it's 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 a known fact that that's the best that there I'm is just
2: stuck on one brand of peanut butter and i will say that i've made my own peanut butter which i don't know if you can get better oh, homemade okay. all
1: right well i'll grant you that
2: but i will try peter pan crunchy
1: of course <laughs> of course <laughs> thanks a lot guys
2: oh yes thanks so much and right. thanks for listening um please be sure to stop over at our website mortificationofspin.org oh good we're so glad
1: yeah no you're doing you're doing great work this great is a very a effective time, way of communicating
2: right? we we'll out of it todd can communicate well sometimes but just to get to today why well why yeah
1: great meeting mean, you and Carl always great talking to you
0: hey thanks for coming from
1: God bless you
0: I- we
1: met
0: in a chat room now our love can fully bloom sure the world wide web is great but you you make me salvate. yes I love technology but not as much as you you see But I still love technology, always
2: and forever. For our listeners as well, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to stop over our website, mortificationofspin.org. We have a free MP3 download for you uh, called Engaging the Culture by Richard Pratt. You can also leave a donation for us over there. And don't forget, as Carl keeps reminding us, if you want to give us a five-star review on iTunes, we would appreciate that as well.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about
2: Should Evangelicals celebrate Martin Luther?
0: But he would certainly have seen transubstantiation as a preferable option over against that offered by Zwingli. When Zwingli wow. argues yeah. for a strongly symbolic understanding of the bread and the wine. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of of spin
2: so my friend made this coffee he aged it in whiskey barrels
0: oh nice so good yeah
2: yeah it's really strong smelling even
0: yeah. Like yeah. When you stay with us, I've got some of that monastic coffee that uh, my friend Megan gave me that the monks make out in Iowa or somewhere. Uh, Monk coffee. Apparently it gets top it's ratings. It's much sought after. <laughs> they even grind a bit of pelvic bone into it. To, the...
2: <laughs> to remind us of death. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> what you drink, we once were.
2: <laughs> oh, That's hilarious.
0: Uh,